Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to the Conquering Columbus podcast, where we bring you the stories of some of Columbus's most inspiring leaders, entrepreneurs, and executives every week. This is episode 170 of the show, and today, Josh is flying solo while talking with Jesse Lear. Jesse's an entrepreneur and the founder of VIP Waste Services, which he successfully exited from. And it's really interesting to hear Jesse's current situation as he's exploring where he goes next. And it's definitely an experience that a lot of entrepreneurs run into. So I believe you'll be able to learn a lot from this episode and what he has to say on this interview. Before we get to that episode, though, as usual, we got to take a quick moment to thank all of our incredible sponsors here at Conquering Columbus. And that starts with Small Biz Cares. Small Biz Cares is a nonprofit founded by socially conscious community leaders here in Columbus, and their goal is to connect, mobilize, and inspire small businesses to create lasting positive impact in our community. And Small Biz Cares members have the unique opportunity to work with like-minded businesses to raise money for great causes and participate in large-scale volunteer efforts and improve educational opportunity for youth in our community. To learn more, visit smallbizcares.org. That is small B-I-Z cares.org Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit helping connect entrepreneurs to everything they need, including investors, mentors, capital, and talent through business pitch events, workshops, and classes throughout the state, and you can get more information on the web at sundownrundown.org. And now I'm going to kick it back to Josh to tell you about our last sponsor, FMX. FMX is a cloud-based facilities maintenance and management software founded and headquartered right here in Columbus, Ohio. There's a lot of competitors in this space, but FMX has made a name for itself, become the fastest-growing facilities maintenance and management software on the market on behalf of its extreme ease of use and tailored-fit approach to its clients. They serve industries ranging from education to property management, manufacturing, fast casual, and more. If you want to check out more, you can go to gofmx.com. All right, Congress, let's get the show on the road. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment, and I might get, you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, yeah, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus. So, Jesse, welcome to Conquering Columbus. How's Thank your day you. going? It's going well. It's going well. How's yours? Uh, it's going pretty good. Yeah, Mike's on vacation in Oregon, so it's, uh, or Oregon, however you pronounce that. So yeah. it's solo here on the podcast today, but things have been going good. I've been running around at uh, our day job, the office space room right now. We're just, we're growing super quickly and That's trying awesome. to hire a bunch of people. And it's, it's a, yeah, it's a lot of fun, but it's definitely, uh, it's a grind right now. So yeah, yeah, I understand that. What have you been up to? You know, a bunch of different things. I'm in an interesting uh, sort of phase right now. The uh, company that bought me out, um, my company VIP Waste, was acquired back in early 2018. And since then, I've basically been working with them as a consultant 
helping manage relationships and keep everybody happy, which is one of my favorite things to do. I love the whole client relationship side of things. But on the side, nights and weekends, every other every minute I can get, I'm working on uh, getting back into online marketing. Uh, it was my passion before we got into uh, the waste industry, and that's sort of what I'm getting back to now. So we'll get more into that in a little bit later. I want to ask some more detailed questions around that. But to yep. take a step back and kind of keep it chronological, let's start back in the beginning. Are there high points from like your childhood, even college, early career, like that stick out to you and kind of make you who you are today? And let's talk through those. Yeah, a couple interesting ones. Um, starting from basically the beginning, I was homeschooled. And only recently have I really understood how that helped sort of form and shape me into the into the person that I became in terms of an on, of entrepreneurship and how it gave me advantages growing up. I, I did see some of the advantages of it, flexibility, things like that. But recently I've really come to a new level of understanding of the ways that it, it's given me an advantage. Um, so we can talk more about that if you want. But the, the other thing that I think was really powerful, um, when I was 15 years old, my dad gave me a copy of this book called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective Teens just like the teen version of the book that everybody knows. That book was the, like, it opened my mind for the first time to this idea that we can shape who we become and to some extent shape the future that we create. And I had really never thought like that before. In, in fact, I didn't even think of myself as a leader at that point in my life. And that really set me on a different path. And it was after that that I kind of realized, you know, I, I really want to explore the possibilities versus just finding a track. And continuing on it. So dive deeper a little bit in the homeschool thing. I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. interested in learning about that. Are your parents like, and maybe some context around them, were they entrepreneurs or were they um, heavy into education? They believe in education pretty strongly. Yeah. So my dad was an entrepreneur. He was a photographer, had his own photography studio for most of my childhood. At one time he had three different studios. So I, I did grow up around entrepreneurship and uh, my mom was a uh, teacher, a first grade teacher. And as soon as I was born in 1987, she quit her teaching job to stay home with me. And she originally didn't want to homeschool, but my dad had had some experiences he wasn't a fan of when he was going through school uh, with bullying and things like that. And uh, he, he really wanted my mom to consider the idea. And I'm probably gonna get some of the facts wrong, but long story short, they decided to give it a try. And my mom became a really big fan of the idea as time went on. And what we really found is that, you know, it goes a long way in creating discipline, which is consequently, you know, is like one of the most important traits of entrepreneurship. So to give you an idea, I mean, by the time I, I went into high school, um, my mom basically said, hey, you can kind of do what you want now. Do you want to go to, to, uh, to public school? Do you want to keep homeschooling? Do you have a different idea? What do you want to do? And at that point, you know, I'd said, hey, I'm, I'm loving the freedom, you know what I mean? Because what high school essentially looked like was she would bring, she organized everything behind the scenes, right? But then she would bring me this stack of textbooks and the, the tests and everything. And, you know, there was some level of trust that was built by them because I was obviously her kid and she knew I, I cared. So I wasn't going to look at the answers and stuff like that. I did get in trouble one time for looking at the answers to a test. But for the most part, it was like, here are your books, get it all done by summer. And if you need anything, come and ask me questions. So it was a very unique experience that I went through in high school. And I paid the consequences of that one time. I, I hated algebra. And there was one winter that I didn't, I just kept putting it off. 
ah, I don't feel like doing this today. I want to go outside and, you know, hang out with my friends or whatever. So I would put it off. Oh, I'll just do double tomorrow. And oh, I'll hit it. I'll blitz it next week and catch up. And I did that for an entire winter. And I think like most of us do, we kind of make little incremental excuses or whatever. And then one day we wake up and find out that we have to pay a large consequence. And that's essentially what I had to do. I had to spend an entire summer doing algebra just to catch up in time to start school again that fall. So things like that did happen that really taught me, hey, you know, you can you can control, like, here's how to discipline yourself. You can have all the freedom in the world, but it's not worth anything if you can't be disciplined and responsible with it. So there's a level of responsibility and discipline that really taught me how to deal with the lack of structure, really, that oftentimes comes in the early years of entrepreneurship. Yeah, we used to have a quote on our wall in our room and in our restaurant that said, pain of discipline, pain of regret. And it kind of just Ooh, uh, like really nailed down that whole the whole philosophy, you know? Yeah. And it's funny when you said that to me, I'm thinking of somebody putting a stack of books in my plate and thinking about how I would be able to handle it at that age and the sense of autonomy yeah. that I now feel now in my role. Like one thing that our present CEO would do a really good job of from my perspective is like to give me a lot of autonomy. And Love it could it. be super dangerous if I, if I was... Uh, less disciplined than what I was, or I was right. fortunate to be who I am. But I love the fact that like, if I want to leave at two o'clock and work out in the middle of the day, but I want to work till nine o'clock at night, like exactly. I just get the job done. Kind yeah. of thing, you know, and that was, that was high school for me. You know, yeah. like there were days that I really wanted to do something in the afternoon. So I'd get up at six, knock it all out by noon and be done. There were days that I felt lazy and I didn't do anything. I slept in and you know, 10 PM at night, I'm still doing it. So I very much reflected the life of an entrepreneur. But yeah, I've also heard something similar said to, to that quote that you mentioned. Um, I forget who says this, but choose your heart. You know, it's like you can either you can either do the right thing by choice now or by obligation later. You know, enough. There's really no easy path at the end of the day. You can you can you know it's it's hard to work out every day. It's also hard to be overweight and try to lose weight. You know, you can. It's hard to work out work every day on building a business after you get home from your day job. That's not fun. That takes a lot of effort, especially if you just want to chill on the couch and watch Netflix. But it's also hard to be broke at 45. You know what I mean? So it, it, there is no easy path. I think that's really an illusion. But we can either choose, we, we get to choose which of those hard paths we're going to take, which I think is really cool. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting dynamic. And I, uh, I think that, you know, I don't know what it is about, it seems like a lot of guests that we bring on, but they seem to have that ability to have that vision in 10, 15, 20 years. And I think that mm. the people who um, might not quite make it to that level, maybe they're just not, they're focused more on the moment. They don't seem like they're really thinking about five, 10, 15 years out, you know? And, yeah. and the ability to sit down with a stack of textbooks and say, okay, I'm going to divide this into reasonable amount of work and I'm going to create a plan and I'm going to, I'm going to do the work in the beginning so I can do the work moving forward, I think yeah. is a, an interesting skill that, I mean, you definitely, I didn't learn at all going through normal schooling. You know, everything's planned yeah. out for me, right. which is kind of one of the things that I enjoyed so much about it. Like all I had to do was just work really hard at the task in front of me and somebody was there to give me another task. You get right. in the real world and like you get into uh, a leadership position there. It's like the position I'm at now, for example, like I have nobody telling me what to do. I have right. to sit there and say, okay, how can I possibly add value at this moment? Yeah. You know? It's one of the challenging things about the way school works in many situations, I think, is it, it does train us to sort of tackle the task that's laid in front of us and do a really good job at it. But the, the problem is that the, the jobs that you get when you're out in the real world, the ones where there's somebody telling you every little thing you need to do step by step, 
they don't tend to be the most rewarding jobs, you know, within terms of enjoyment and, you know, financially. So I think there's a lot of benefit and, you know, most people weren't homeschooled. Most people aren't homeschooled, but there are ways that you can still work on creating that sort of discipline. Um, and then recognizing that as something that's super important, um, especially if you want to be an entrepreneur, because that's certainly a scenario where there's not going to be somebody telling you, you need to do something by the end of the day. You need, you need to decide for yourself what is enough. You know, when have I worked long enough that I can quit for the day? And that, that can be a challenge. So surprisingly, it's not a podcast about homeschool, but I think, I think everything <laughs> we covered was really awesome. I enjoyed it. Um, if we fast forward to the finishing of high school, yeah. do you go into, what path do you go from there, I guess? So after high school, I knew I wanted to go to college and my dad was really, it was very important to him that all of us, uh, me and my two little sisters, we, that we all went to college and he hadn't gone to college until much later in life. So that, and he had faced some consequences from that when there were times that he needed a job and there was a certain job he was perfectly qualified for, but they required a bachelor's degree. He didn't have one. And so he was very adamant that we were going to go to college. So that's what we did. Um, we went to, uh, I went to Cedarville university, which is close to Dayton. You know, the, one of the things that that experience really did for me was it, it taught me how to learn. And I learned a lot. Um, I also gained my passion for travel when I was in college. I studied abroad twice, once in Costa Rica, once in Dublin, Ireland. I wasn't particularly cut out for college, to be honest with you. It wasn't something that I really enjoyed very much in terms of the academic side of things. Uh, and there were, there were multiple times that I thought about dropping out. And I don't think it really had anything to do with the school per se. It was more me and my wiring. I could just, there was something deep down that I could tell I wasn't a good fit for that method of learning. And uh, it probably just was a continuation of the same, right? I wanted to learn on my own terms, and that's not something that typically happens. So while I was, I was reading tons of books. I was studying, at, you know, things like skills like copywriting. I was reading all kinds of books. I was practicing it. People were paying me 50, 60 bucks an hour to write sales letters for them, things like that my senior year of college. But I really had no interest in a lot of the assignments that I was being given. So it was just kind of a weird, you know, stressful sort of um, situation. And, you know, looking back now, even though it wasn't a lot of fun, it shaped who I became and it led to some pretty great things later. So when you say it taught you how to learn, what do you mean by that? Well, that's a great question. I think I did know to some extent how to learn already just from the, the process that I'd had to go through. But I think one of the things that I wasn't aware of was just the, the impact that relationship building and networking could have. Uh, and when, and when you're around people all the time, which is something I wasn't used to, right? I had two little sisters and I was, a, I was at home with my parents and we lived 20 miles from a small town for the majority of my childhood. So that was, that was something that I really discovered that was new when I went to college was that, you know, there, there are all of these people around me and they all know people and, you know, you can learn all the things, you can learn all the facts in the world, you can learn all the strategies or ways of thinking or whatever, but there are times now that I'll make, I'll send a single text that'll get me much further than an entire new skill that might've taken me a year to learn. Really, it was, it was learning how to, how to move forward in life and to tackle new projects and to navigate that whole world of building relationships uh, more than just learn, learning how to learn facts, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So when you graduate college, what path do you take then? Yeah, so that's where the journey got really interesting. Um, 
I, re- I knew by the time I finished college that I wanted to be an entrepreneur and I was trying a whole bunch of different things. Like I said, I was into copywriting. So I had some people, um, some online entrepreneurs who were paying me to write their sales letters and things like that. Um, while I was in college, I actually started, um, after coming back from studying in Dublin, Ireland, I wrote an ebook um, because I'd been watching Evan Pagan and all the things that he was doing. And I thought, man, I want to, I want to create something like what he's done, except about the experiences I had living with an Irish family in Dublin, Ireland. Because what I'd realized was that there were a lot of really awesome things to do that all the guidebooks that I had gotten from the library and bookstore and everything else didn't talk about. So I came home, wrote an ebook, and essentially sold um, throughout the following semester of school, sold three, you know, you know, two to three copies, sometimes five copies a day of this ebook at almost 30 bucks a piece while my friends were working for $7 an hour at the cafeteria. So I knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur. That project was kind of short-lived because my book got outdated quickly and things like that. But, and that's the way I could tell you more about that story maybe another time. But I knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur. And when I graduated from school, I just kind of thought that everything was going to fall into place. I was going to come up with the perfect idea. It was, always, it was all going to work out. So honestly, up until graduation, I never made plans to get a job. I never went to interviews. I never sent out my resume to anybody. So looking back now, it was a pretty dumb move. You know, I had all these friends who were graduating, getting jobs at consulting firms and whatever. And I just kind of assumed everything was going to work out. And it did not. (laughs) It did not work out. I ended up living back with my parents in their basement. Um, After college, I had over 30 grand in student loan debt and an additional 30,000 in credit card debt. Um, Because when I was 18, uh, a bank gave me a card with a $14,000 limit on it and did what most 18 year olds would do. And I maxed it out. Uh, so I was in a pretty bad spot, you know, no income, $750 a month credit card bill, phone full of voicemails from bill collectors. And um, I just said, you know, what? I got to go home and figure out what I'm doing. So I was there. I was trying to start all these different online projects. I started dip, like five different things in one summer because I was freaking out trying to get something put together that would make some money. And eventually I bounced a check to my buddy, Jake. And that's when everything kind of changed. He had sold me a laptop. He was, he was the kind of guy that was always hustling. He was always trying to find a new opportunity. And he had found a bunch of Acer laptops that were like 100 bucks a piece if you bought 50 of them. It was something like that. And he had sold me one of these laptops for, I don't know, 200 bucks. And I wrote him a check. And I just assumed there was at least 200 bucks in my bank account. And there wasn't. Uh, and Jake was kind of a dramatic guy. And he called me up on the phone one day and said, dude, your check bounced. And he's like, you know what this means, right? I was like, no, what does it mean? You know, and he had been trying to convince me to take a job in Columbus selling cable door to door for at least a year. And, you know, that was the last thing I wanted to do. I had these big dreams of being an entrepreneur. I had a four-year college degree in marketing. I thought, you know, I'm, I'm so far beyond that, you know. And I realized on that phone call that I was not beyond that. And in some words, he basically told me, you know, beggars can't be choosers. You owe me money. And I said, you know what? You're right. I have no idea how I'm going to pay you back. I don't have the money. I don't have any source of income. I'll, I'll interview for the job. So interviewed, got the job, moved uh, to Dayton, um, close to the university I'd gone to, crashed on a buddy's couch, and commuted every day from Dayton to Columbus to sell cable door to door. And uh, fortunately, I had him to teach me how to do it. So did pretty well. And within a couple of years had paid off most of my debt, you know, was paying back on track with my bills, things like that. 
And uh, yeah, that was the first couple years after school, man. It, it didn't turn out anything like what I was expecting at all. So you're grinding, selling cable door to door, maybe one of the hardest sales positions that you, you mm -hmm. could possibly take after spending uh, probably what felt to you like a, a good several months of failure right. post-college. What do you, what finally pushed you over the edge and then where do you go after you get done selling? Yeah. So I didn't really know where that was going to lead, but it was going decently well. And I, again, I love the flexibility of that too. Um, it was one of those things where you didn't, you know, there was really no point in knocking on people's doors at 11 o'clock on a Tuesday because they're not home. So really I had most of the day free until four or 5 PM. And as, you know, as long as I was getting sales, nobody really cared. So I loved that part of it. I love the flexibility and it wasn't something I was in a really big hurry to get out of, except for the fact that it just wasn't fun, especially in the middle of the winter. You know, you're out walking around sidewalks, stepping in snow and ice for four or five hours at a time, knocking on doors of strangers. And, you know, one person slams the door in your face, the next person gives you a hug. It's just like an emotional roller coaster. And even that aside from the fact that it's very difficult to get sales that way, you know, you, you start from a negative. Nobody really wants people to knock on their door selling them something. But what changed everything really was when a buddy of mine called me one day and said, Hey, what are you up to these days? What are you into? And we'd been really close in college and he had gone a similar path. He hadn't really known what he wanted to do, ended up living with his parents again. And I said, Hey, I'm, I'm actually selling cable door to door to door. It's going really well. And he's like, really? And I said, yeah, you should, you should try it. You should move up here and interview. And he was like, dude, yeah. I'll do it. You know, I just, I just need to pay the bills. I need to get some money coming in. So he, uh, he packed everything in his car. I got him an interview. He basically packed everything in his car, drove from Florida up to Columbus with everything in his, basically all, basically all of his stuff, just assuming that, um, he was probably going to get the job. Um, he did get the job. And as soon as his income got up a little bit, we said, Hey, let's, let's move to a nicer part of town, stop crashing on couches and get a nice apartment. We'll be roommates. So we asked our boss at the cable company, hey, what's the nicest part of Columbus to live in? So we were still fairly new to the area. And um, he told us, he gave us the name of a community in New Albany. We said, okay, great. That's where we're going to try to move. So we got an apartment there. And within a couple of months, it's the middle of the winter. It's freezing cold. And we realize all of a sudden that it's a huge pain to take the trash out. And that might sound weird to anybody who's not lived in a large apartment community. I don't know if you have or not, but... The community that we lived in had about 420 apartments, but there was only one trash compactor and it was all the way on one side of the community. We lived on the opposite side. So to take your trash out, even in the middle of the summer when it's nice out, meant, you know, a 15 minute walk each way. So, you know, and that's with heavy bags of trash that might be leaking or whatever. So what a lot of people were doing is they were putting them on top of their cars and occasionally you'd forget and pull out onto the road and it'd spill everywhere or you know, stay in your car with my uh, roommate and business partner, Travis, he, he essentially uh, one time put a bag of trash inside his car on the passenger seat. It leaked some kind of pink or purple ice cream. I don't know what kind of ice cream is pink or purple, but it, it leaked ice cream all over his leather seats. And we started thinking eventually, man, like it's kind of weird that this is a, it literally said luxury apartment living on the sign. Yet, you know, the single mom, the elderly man, whatever, you know, all of these people, the, the person who works until 10 p.m. and then comes home to a dark parking lot, all of these people have to haul their own trash far away. And it, it just seemed kind of odd that, you know, for a, a house pretty much anywhere, 
you have curbside pickup, but for an apartment, you have to haul your own trash. And we thought, this is just weird. It was the first time we lived in an apartment community. So we, we came up with this brilliant idea that we were going to go knock on doors because that's what we were used to doing. And we were going to convince, um, you know, 20 or 30 people to pay us a modest amount of money to take their trash to the compactor for them and maybe make enough money to pay rent. And we wanted to make sure that we weren't going to get in trouble. So we went and pitched it to our apartment community's manager, uh, the property manager. And she was very nice to us. You know, she was she was great about it, but in very kind words, basically told us that they were a very large company and they couldn't just let a couple of random kids go knock on doors and sell things to the community. We would have to actually become a business and create a contract with them. So that was when we really started Googling it, trying to figure out what was going on. We noticed that there was a company who did something similar, but was very large and they were based in Florida. And that's when we noticed that they had pretty much tackled every part of the United States except for the Midwest. And we saw an opportunity there and we thought, wait a minute, this could be bigger than just paying rent. So you guys, you notice this opportunity, um, you kind of size up the market and you realize you're feeling the pain personally. How does it go from you start creating a business like an LLC at that point and then are you uh, getting the contracts in motion? Like what does the, the zero to one granular steps look like there? Yeah, that's a great question. So for us, we had no clue what we were doing. We we both had degrees in marketing, but we didn't have, I mean, as you probably know, it's very different than experience in entrepreneurship. So we didn't know how to start an LLC. We didn't know how to create a website. We didn't know, we had no clue what was entailed in ordering, you know, and creating a logo or anything like that. So essentially what we had to do, um, and we kind of came up with a little bit of a system. Every morning at 8 a.m., uh, we'd get in the car and we'd drive to Panera, and we would work from eight to 12 on our business. And most of those early days were spent just figuring out what do you even do to start a business? How do you create a website? How do you, you know, start an LLC? You know, what kind of governing entities would we need to have approval from in order to do this? We didn't know any of that stuff. So we spent eight to noon every day. If one of us was late, we had to buy the other one breakfast. That's kind of how we kept ourselves on track. So we did that every day for months, honestly. We started the, uh, we formed the LLC in, two, in uh, December of 2010. And it was October of 2011 before we quit our day jobs. And it was May of 2011 before we even got one client to say yes to give us a chance. So it was a lot of days in Panera, a lot of, I remember driving around with Travis and us just kind of being, feeling really down about the whole thing and just saying, man, we've put hundreds of hours into this thing. We need a client. We, we need somebody we can actually test this on. And, uh, so that's, that's really how the whole thing began. And eventually at a trade show, we actually spent some money to go to a trade show and set up a booth. And it was funny because I remember while we were at that trade show, we had somebody tell us it was never going to work. Um, but it was also at that same trade show that we met the person who ended up becoming our first client and ultimately our largest client who stayed with us the entire time as a company until we sold. Um, and that was Oakwood Management. They were really wonderful to us the entire time we were in business. And I think a lot of it was because their president had started at a, uh, he, he kind of saw himself in us, I think, and just recognized the the hunger that we had. And he had started from nothing to and built uh, to where he was. Um, so that's, that's really how that's, he essentially came to us one day and said, Hey, you know, we, we arranged a meeting with him and said, Hey, we're just looking for, I don't know, I guess, you get to a point when you're trying to start something and it's not working out where you just, you eventually lose hope with the act and you just drop it and you just 
start being more transparent with people and telling them the, the, the how you really feel. And that's kind of where we got to. We had a, a meeting with him and the chief operating officer at Longhorn Steakhouse. And we basically told him, look, we're just a couple of kids with an idea that we really believe in and we have no clients and we just need somebody to give us a shot. And we think that the person who gives us a shot is really going to is really going to get a lot out of this. And he kind of looked at us and was like, OK, here's what I'm going to do. And he basically said, I'm going to give you a thousand dollars. And that's it. And you're going to pick up trash and recycling five nights a week at one of my 250 unit complexes. And you guys put all the expenses, thousand bucks is all I want to pay. And this is a test. We'll see how it goes. If it works out and we'll talk. And that felt like the biggest win in the world for us. That's really what sparked the whole thing. All right, Conquerors, we're going to take a quick break here in the show to tell you about a group called Columbus Gives Back. If you're looking for a way to get involved in your community, but you don't know where and how to start, look no further than Columbus Gives Back. By partnering with over 150 Central Ohio nonprofits, Columbus Gives Back makes volunteering fun and easy by offering 30 to 40 volunteer events each month that are free of cost, commitment, and hassle. Sign up for your first event today at columbusgivesback.org. That's columbusgivesback.org. Conquering Columbus would also like to take a moment to thank the 11th Candle Company. 11th Candle Company may be in the business of selling candles, but the social enterprise thrives on igniting hope. Employing women who have experienced human trafficking, 11th offers the resources to redeem, empower, and support them on their journeys to burn bright again. Every candle sold shines a light on an issue that often walks in darkness and provides hope to once trafficked women on their path to redemption. Come pour your own candle of hope at Polaris Fashion Place across from the Apple Store or visit www.11thcandlecompany.com. That's www.11thcandlecompany.com, and that'll be linked down in the show notes. All right, Conquerors, let's get back to this episode. Do you remember some of those objections early on? Like, why were people not so receptive to the service? Why were they not going? It sounds like an easy win. It sounds like it's definitely a value add. Yeah, yeah. And time, times have changed a lot in terms of people's perception of this idea. Um, when we started, uh, just to give you an idea of what it looked like, I mean, we would go into these apartment communities, ask for the property manager. We would talk a little bit about the idea. And literally 90 plus percent of them thought that it was a super crazy idea. Like we would never pay for anything like that. It's really what we were trying to do is contract with them, get them to get into like a three plus year contract with us to pick up trash from every resident's doorstep multiple days a week. They would pay us a per unit per month rate and, and essentially add it as an amenity to their um, apartment community. And they, they didn't see it at all. I mean, they, you're talking about an industry where for decades, it's worked, everything's worked a certain way, right? They've always had either dumpsters or compactors. There's never been anything else. Everybody's used to it. Um, even if it is painful, nobody really knows there's an alternative. So they don't get that many complaints. So it was an interesting thing because, you know, a lot of these communities, they, they were used to finding people for putting trash on their doorsteps. Like in, you know, 2010, if you put trash on your doorstep, you were going to get a $25 fine in the community that we were living at, you know? So it was very difficult to take them from that state, that way of thinking where this is something we find people for to this is something we want to encourage people to do and pay to let them do, you know? So it just took a little bit of an adjustment, but we knew there was going to come a day where this was like a normal amenity that nearly everyone had. And we're very, very quickly on the way there now. I mean, 
I think there are, there's something like 250 to 300 companies doing what we did, what we were doing in the United States. And when we started, I, there was just a handful. So everyone knows what it is now. Not everybody's won over, but everyone knows what it is. Most people see the value in it. And, you know, certainly residents do who don't want to haul their trash across a dark parking lot in the night. Yeah, it's probably one of the, one of the downsides of disrupting a market that isn't quite there yet is that oh. you know, you have to educate the market on top of that. You know, you look I at know. these disruptive technologies and you, it makes you realize just how rare they are because there has to be a market that understands how to buy a similar product or service. You then have to do that product or service better and, and then reallocate all that money into your organization. You know, your, yeah. your money was flowing complete opposite direction. <laughs> they, they were collecting money and you were giving them, okay, now you're going to start paying money and not collect that money from that resident anymore. You actually bring up uh, a separate topic too that I think is super interesting. One of the most common questions that I get from people who ask me for advice or whatever is just like, man, you guys came up with the perfect, unique, like new idea. Like how do I come up with an idea that is new and on the verge of exploding like that? And one of the things I tell them is like, look, that's one of the things that, I mean, in, in some ways it helped us out, but it, that's also one of the things that made it super difficult to build our company. Not only, we had to actually, we had to first convince people that there was actually value in this idea, that it wasn't a dumb idea from the beginning. And then once we finally convinced them it wasn't a dumb idea, then we had to sell them on us and the contract and the pricing and the terms and all of those types of things. So what I tell people a lot of times now is look, your, your idea does not have to be original to be good. In fact, Sometimes lots of competition is a sign of an even better idea. And in fact, it's a sign of lower risk because if there are competitors for any length of time, that means it works. That mean, That's evidence that there's already money flowing in that direction. So instead of looking for an idea that nobody's thought of yet or something like that, I think in many cases for most people, it's better to find something that's already working really well and come up with your own unique angle on it that solves a problem or th that's maybe not been perfectly met yet, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And then one of the, uh, I mean, you had spot on one of the lessons that they taught us as I went through grad school and our entrepreneurship class was, uh, we were talking about, you know, we went through the process of creating the company and they talked about, well, you know, this market's already here and we see competitors there. And our professor was really heavy on, you know, if you see competitors there, I almost, I almost encourage you to chase that then exactly, and do it better than that individual. Yeah. Cause they're spending money to educate the market for you now come in second and do that whole process better. So it's very interesting. Right. So, so how long does this go on? How long do you run the business for? Yeah. So we started it, like I said, in, in December of 2010, um, we started early 2011, really trying to promote it, getting involved in the Columbus apartment association which became really the largest source of our clients um, that we added to the portfolio. Uh, over the course of the first two, well, I mean, we, we took it to the point where we were at least making a couple thousand a month, uh, which for us, I mean, we were roommates, we were single, we had very little responsibilities, we had very cheap cars. I think our cars might have even been paid off, you know, things like that. And so, you know, 2000 was almost enough to live off of per month at that time for us. And uh, there was a time when the mayor of Columbus at the time actually mentioned us on NPR. It's one of the interesting things that happened. You know, when you, the more you experiment, I always say the more you experiment, the, ex, the more you experiment, the more chances you give luck to come through for you. And that's what really happened for us in some ways because the uh, the mayor of Columbus was trying to get reelected at the time. He was talking about a big recycling initiative that he was doing for single family homes. People eventually found out, hey, you know, 
this, this leaves out apartments. This whole plan doesn't include apartments and apartments make up nearly half the entire city um, in terms of housing. So he was having to answer all these questions. At the same time, we were just starting to get some articles published about us and stuff like that. We met him and said, hey, we just think this is something you should know about. We don't really want anything from you, but we just we wanted you to be aware of what we're trying to do for people right now. And uh, he started talking about us because we were sole source at the time. There's nobody else doing anything like that in the city. He started talking about us on the radio and happened to mention our names on NPR when uh, our bosses, our boss was driving to work one day and heard our names being mentioned by the mayor of founders of this waste company. And it wasn't long after that that we, uh, he called us into his office and basically, you know, kind of had a smirk on his face because part of him was really proud of us too. But he basically, you know, he'd seen our numbers go down last couple months. He knew something was off. Now it made sense. So he basically said, hey, guys, it's time for you to, cho to choose. Do you want to be full-time entrepreneurs or do you want to sell cable door-to-door? -door? Decision wasn't too difficult, you know. So we said, this is what we really want to do. It's starting to work. And so we uh, we parted ways. We resigned. We went full-time. That's when we became full-time entrepreneurs and grew it from there. We continued growing with Oakwood. We continued getting other clients in town. A lot of the major names um, partnered with us. Uh, for multi-year contracts and from there it it really just grew um expanded to multiple cities until 2018 when we were acquired so that lasted for almost well that's 17 years you said 2000 right no 2010 2000 end of 2010 okay. we founded it yes yeah, so, so about and you went full go in 2011 in may is that what you said 2011 in may we got our first uh contract 2011 in october we went full-time okay I'll get, I'll get it straight before the end no, of the show. That's okay. I know I'm mentioning a lot of dates. So so we grow it for about seven years and a little over seven years and then decide when you were approaching kind of the end of it, when you were going to make the sale, were you and your partner on the same page? It was ready. It was time to go at that point? It took us some time to figure that out because that wasn't really our goal. And interestingly enough, in the beginning of the business, when we were first founding it, you know, and we were Googling and we, we learned about this company, Valet Living, that had essentially founded the industry in the 90s. They were based in Tampa and... You know, off, I remember just randomly one day, one of us said, how crazy would it be if Sunday this, this thing got big enough that Valley Living would just buy us out? And so that was kind of a dream that was planted early on. But by the time, you know, 2017 came and we were making really good money, we had like 30 employees. We, were in, we had teams in five cities, really, really lean operation. But the company was extremely profitable. It was growing very quickly. Uh, we had hired a, somebody help, to help us with operations. So we had a lot of flexibility in terms of, you know, we weren't working 12 hour days anymore. We could, you know, take off for a day or two and nobody would even notice. So we kind of created it into a lifestyle business because we didn't think the chances of ever getting bought out were very high at all. At that point, we were, you know, we were in the seven figures in revenue and there were only two, three, maybe companies in the entire United States making more than that. And we thought, man, the odds of getting bought out are like getting struck by lightning. So we're just going to create this into the, like, the ultimate, ultimate lifestyle business that um, pays us great money and requires very little work or effort. And, you know, we made a lot of progress toward that. And then there was this one trade show that we went to in Cincinnati. And uh, we, we like to do marketing stunts. We did things at trade shows where we, like a couple years we partnered with a zoo. I don't think they do this anymore, but we partnered with a zoo and had live penguins at our booth. One year we had uh, little baby um, clouded leopard cubs in our booth. So we always had crowds around our trade show booth and we always try to do some things to make it fun versus just having, you know, a basket full of candy or something like that. And 
this one, I think it was in 2017 in May, we were at a trade show and we did this thing. It was like a rodeo booth and we bought this uh, thing that's made to practice lassoing, you know, so it, it kind of looked like a cow. And we had this in our booth. We decorated the whole thing like a Western theme and we had a lasso and we basically ordered like 250 of these uh, cowboy hats that had our logo on the front. And anybody who could lasso the cow, we were giving them a free cowboy hat, which of course I ha had our logo on the front. The idea was that people would put it on because it's the easiest place to put it when you're walking around the trade show. And then we'd have this sea of cowboy hats kind of towering above the crowd that everybody could see our logo. And that's exactly what happened. It was really fun to watch. And uh, I was walking, I happened to know one of the employees of Valley Living at that time. So I walked past their booth and I was just taking a break at one point and I cracked a joke about the hats and they said, yeah, I mean, these, your, your guys logo is literally everywhere on this trade show floor. I said, yeah, I know there's, there's one way that you could, uh, you could make them all go away. And she was like, what? And I said, you could buy us out. And I was completely kidding. I was just joking. Um, just trying to give her a hard time. And she had somebody else with her who I think was like a regional manager of some sort. And he kind of looked at me with this really serious look and he was like, wait, you guys would sell. And I was kind of taken off guard. I didn't think they would even be interested in buying us out. But um, I said, well, I mean, we're not looking to sell, but we're business people. I mean, if you guys wanted to give us an offer, it's, you know, we would at least listen. And it kind of died there until uh, I woke up the next day and I had an email from him saying, hey, if you're really serious, I want to connect you with somebody. And I said, well, like I said, you know, we're business people. We'll listen to, we'll listen to whatever. Few, uh, a few weeks later, one of their VPs flew up, met with us. We started flying back and forth. And then that's kind of started the whole crazy adventure of the acquisition process that was happening behind the scenes. And uh, essentially what these animals, these animals were Jack Hanna's animals that he was traveling with. Uh, and since they couldn't really predict when he was going to need the animals and these events were obviously important to people, I think that's why they stopped, they stopped that program. But we were actually supposed to have, an, I believe it was an adult cheetah. And uh, Jack Hanna needed it for the tour. It got pulled. It got pulled. Yeah. It got pulled at the last minute. We were pretty upset that we didn't get the cheetah. They gave us the two cloud of leopard cubs, which, you know, to us didn't seem like it was as cool as a cheetah. But man, the crowds at that show—like we were proven wrong on that one. But yeah, I think they decided that program wouldn't work. But it was—it was amazing for us while it lasted. And and that wasn't the only thing we did. We had a contestant from The Bachelorette come at one point. Uh, when he was super popular and everybody knew who he was and they could get their picture on the red carpet with him handing them a rose. Um, because most of, a lot of the people in the apartment industry are women. So, um, and we knew some of them watched The Bachelorette. So, you know, a lot of it was just about knowing who your market is and looking for ways to go above and beyond and really delight them and be memorable. It's really what we tried to do. Yeah, it seems like a common theme uh, in your story is really just being street smart in a sense that it's really gritty and it's it's not anything like crazy like over the but it's just like knowing the people and reverse engineering them and then understanding okay well hey i would definitely want to see a live cheetah inside of this trade show so yeah. i'm assuming everybody else would want to do that at the same time exactly exactly a lot of it's i think people are so focused on best practices that they never stop to think, hey, what would be really cool? And I think if, you know, one of the things that's benefited me the most is really just being willing to ask, okay, what's the coolest that this could possibly be? What's the coolest thing we could possibly do here? 
and then work backwards and ask if it's possible. Is what a lot of people do is they they start to get just a hint of an idea, and if it's not been done successfully before, if they don't, if they aren't sure it's going to be successful, if it sounds too expensive or whatever, they ask it before they even try. You know, if we had done that, I never even would have even called the zoo. I never would have reached out to some people and said, "Hey, does anybody know anybody from the Bachelorette?" And found out that one of my close friends actually was close friends with this contestant. You know what I mean? So. If I just assumed it would be too expensive or too difficult, I wouldn't have known. I would. It wouldn't have been possible. But just the that act of thinking on a broader on a broader level and just going, hey, "What's the coolest thing I could do here?" I think is is a change that a lot of people can make that would have some pretty surprising results, even on its own. So fast forward to today, you know the the sale has taken place. Um, where are you and your partner at in life? And then what's next for you guys? Yeah, so we sold the company in 2018. Like I said, we they brought us, they kept us on for a little while, um, sort of in a consulting role um, to continue making sure that all the clients remain happy. I mean, one of the reasons they bought us out was because they had hired a couple different salespeople in the area, and um, to my understanding, more than a year had gone by and they hadn't gotten a single sale. And one of the people who worked for them actually told them that, hey, if if you guys really want to get into this market, you're going to have to buy VIP waste out. So that's how strong our relationships were. I mean, over the course of seven years, we lost, I think, one out of over 100 of our clients due to any sort of dissatisfaction at all. We had a few clients who sold their properties to like out-of-town management companies or something like that. It was a small handful, but we only had one ever in seven years canceled due to dissatisfaction. That was because we tried to launch too soon in a new market. So we stayed, we basically have decided, you know, they decided to keep us on for a little while in client relationship management roles just to make sure the transition went smoothly. So we're still in the middle of that. But in addition to that, my business partner's really excited about real estate. He's gotten into real estate investing. I'm focused on online marketing again, because that was my original passion. And I'm super excited to get back to that now. So I'm trying to learn all the things that weren't important at that time, you know, pre 2000. I guess 2008 is when I was into it last. So lots changed in the internet marketing world since then. So I'm learning Facebook advertising. I'm learning how to build funnels using different software that wasn't available back then, things like that. And I'm really into, as, a, as far as a niche, I really want to help other entrepreneurs uh, create something similar to what I've created. I know there's a lot of people out there doing that. So this is really kind of an interesting part of life for me where I don't really know what's next. And I think entrepreneurs go through that a lot of times when especially we're young, we think there's going to come a day where we figure out what we want to do with our lives. And then once we've figured it out, that's it. But you know, that's not always how I'd say that's almost never how it works. I think we go through multiple times in life where we have to rediscover and redefine what it is that our mission is. That's kind of where I'm at right now. A lot of the stuff that I'm writing about and working on is actually in the travel hacking niche. Um, and I know that there's at least one company that's very successfully doing that in Columbus right now. But I kind of, again, accidental, I kind of stumbled into that after selling the company. One of the dreams that I had was to travel. And so my wife and I decided, hey, we're going to set aside a certain amount of money that to us sounded like a ton of money. We're going to set aside $15,000 and we're just going to travel for a year and started Googling all these different things on our bucket list. Very quickly found out that $15,000 was not going to take us very far. We're maybe going to get two of our bucket list trips uh, completed for that amount of money. And it was kind of depressing, right? Because I'd never blown 15 grand on anything in my life. 
So uh, I started Googling things like how to get discounts on luxury hotels and how to get cheap uh, business class flights and things like that. Discovered this thing called travel hacking, uh, which is essentially the art of using credit card points and creative research to uh, get you know flights and hotels for next to nothing. So I delved into that pretty hard. We ended up going on at least seven vacations in 2018. At least three of those vacations, we stayed in presidential suites. We flew first class multiple times. Uh, we flew at least 14 times in 2018, and I spent less than $500 on flights total. So I'm posting about this stuff on Facebook, and next thing I know, my phone is blowing up with friends and family wanting to, advice on how to do it, wanting to know which credit card to get next, things like that. So at the moment, I'm, I'm not really sure where it's going, but I'm helping people with that. I'm writing some articles about it, things of that nature. Uh, so it's really just a process of discovery and adding value where I can. What does the day-to-day -day look like for you? Is it still the same grind when you were first starting VIP, or is it now you're being more chill and you're able to, to relax? And I mean, is there a sense of urgency, I guess, every morning when you wake up to kind of create something again, or do you feel more relaxed? I'd say for the first year, there was, you know, I was kind of enjoying a break from entrepreneurship. It was, it was kind of stressful, especially in that, in that final year when we were dealing with all of the, you know, attorneys and accountants and everything to close the deal. So after that, I was really ready for a break. But the funny thing was, there was, I think it was maybe three days after the deal closed, the money hit our bank accounts, you know, I was planning all these trips doing, you know, it, we felt like we'd made it right. And one night, I think, it, like I said, it was three days after closing the deal, selling the company. It's three o'clock in the morning, and I'm sitting up in bed on my phone, frantically researching this new business idea I had just come up with. And that's kind of when I realized, wait a minute, this isn't this was never about the money. This was about the game. And I knew kind of at that moment, even three days after the acquisition that entrepreneurship, maybe I was taking a break from, from it, but it was me. It was something that I was going to be in for a long time and I was eventually going to go back to. So I tried to be honest, I tried to take it easy for a year, but it was, that was very, very challenging to do. I tried to divert all the energy I had to just adding value to the company that just bought us out, make sure all the clients were still happy, bring in some more clients for them, things like that. But the whole time I just had this nagging deep down, man, I just couldn't wait to start something else again. Um, so the interesting thing is, you know, when I decided that I, it was time to start something else, it was, this, it was kind of a weird dynamic because, you know, I was so used to being motivated by survival and now I had to find the motivation from somewhere else. You know, fear is a great motivator. It's a very powerful motivator, but it's not a sustainable or healthy motivator, I don't think. And so I had to go through a process of really kind of discovering who I was again and finding out, where, hey, where, where does healthy motivation come from and how do I create urgency when next month's rent isn't on the line, you know? So there, there was a process of creating that urgency again. And, you know, I think sometimes you have to invent it for yourself a little bit. You have to create scenarios where, you, where, where you're kind of manufacturing your own hunger to make sure that you still are as driven as you were when you were just beginning. And it's just a phase you go through. A lot of it too revolves around just spending time with people more successful than yourself. You know, if you feel like you've made it, you're not going to be very hungry. And it, it, it's always shocked me how I, different people can have such drastically different opinions of where you're at in life. You know, I've had times where in, the, in one day somebody asks me, you know, I, I, I would just love to someday be where you are. Can you just give me a little bit of advice? Thank you so much for spending time with me. And then two hours later, 
somebody's like, you're spending time on what? You only made how much from the acquisition? You know, and it's just so, it's just so interesting. Like if you, and this is honestly why you can't take your, you can't form the picture of your own identity or your own self-worth based on what other people think, because there, there's always going to be a giant spectrum of what those opinions say. You really have to ask yourself, what is it that I'm trying to create? What kind of value do I want to add to the world? What do I have to bring to the table? And if you're comparing yourself to other people, if you're looking for to other people to kind of form your identity of who you are, whether or not you're successful, where whether or not you're where you should be in life. You know, I, I've got friends who I was embarrassed to tell, you know, how little we got when we sold our company. And I've had other friends who I didn't want to make them feel bad because the amount we got was so enormous that I didn't want to tell them. You know what I mean? So it's just the definition of what numbers mean and, you know, that, those outside signals about where we are in life are just so fickle and unreliable and relative that you, you really just have to form your own picture of what it is you're trying to create and who you're trying to be and measure yourself against that every day. Yeah. I think, I think success in general is the most relative thing. It's <clears> hugely relevant. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so relative. And then, you know, you want to get super depressed really quickly and look at someone who's on social media who makes $7 million a year because they got 15 million followers and they're exactly. three years younger than you, you know, it's like, and you know that you're grinding, you know, 16 hours a day to make your dreams come true. But yeah, it, it, it is depressing as it is. I almost am really thankful that it makes you kind of step back and say, what does this even matter to me? And you, you kind of have to realize just what you said. That, like You have to appreciate the road and the journey. You do. And the people that you're sharing it with. And if you don't, then you're always going to end up unfulfilled because there's always right. going to be, you know, the, the $7 billion, the $7 billion in one, you know? Yep. I mean, there's somebody who's always got more and you... It seems like you really just, if you don't appreciate it and you spend 20 years of your life grinding to try to beat everybody else, uh, there's a very slim chance that you're going to come up, come up the right way, you know? Yeah. And as soon as, like you said, as soon as you reach that level, you're going to start surrounding yourself with people who are at 10 times higher of a level. You're going to start comparing yourself with them and you're literally going to feel the exact same. Somebody told me one time, you know, the problem with, you know, thinking that you're going to feel differently in a different situation the problem with that is that when you go to that situation, you bring yourself there too, you know? And I think in many ways, happiness is a, is a, a lens we look through. It's not a circumstance or a place or something that we look at, you know? So I think you really do have to focus on the journey and enjoying the game of it. And that's kind of the, the thing that I tied my own motivation to again, when I was sort of trying to figure out, okay, how do I motivate myself to want to, you know, be hungry and strive uh, toward new goals and things like that. It's, it's the game and it's the contribution. You know, when you see that something that you've done or your story or whatever has made a difference for somebody else, that's incredibly motivating. And when you realize, wait a minute, the game is half of the fun for me, that's incredibly motivating as well. But you do have to focus on the journey and com just compare yourself to where you were and who you were yesterday. And remember that, you know, we're all pretty fortunate at the end of the day, you know, and, and remember like there, the money, everything else is just a byproduct, right? Like there's something that you want that money or that success to give you. And the ironic thing is that in many situations, we already have the thing that we're striving to get. You know, a lot of us, we want to make more money so that we can have freedom. But in reality, we already have a decent amount of freedom. You know what I mean? Um, I don't know if you've heard of the Mexican fisherman story. Mm. Yeah. So I'm probably going to butcher this, but I'll give it a try. There's, um, 
wealthy businessman that went on vacation to a little fishing village in Mexico because he was trying to unplug. While he was there, he was sitting on the beach, he watched this uh, fishing boat, this little one-man fishing boat coming in and out. This, uh, this guy was on the boat, you know, he's, he's going catching three, four or five fish, whatever a day, he's bringing it back in. And the businessman watches and one day he, he goes up to him and he says, hey, like, how long have you been doing this? Starts asking him some questions and says, well, you know, what's your plan? Like, what are you, where are you going to go with this? Are you going to get more boats or whatever? And he's like, no, you know, it's like right now, you know, all I do is I just kind of, you know, I go out, catch four or five fish. I, I, I come back, I'm back by noon. You know, I, I eat lunch with my wife. I take a nap, you know, I go hang out with my friends in the city square, you know, have a, have a beer or whatever. And I go to bed and I do the same thing over again. You know, it's, it's a really peaceful, great life. And, and the businessman says, oh my gosh, like, you know, you don't, you don't understand though. Like this could become really big. Like clearly, you know where to catch fish, like take the profits that you've made from catching these five fish. Just take like half of them and go buy another boat, hire another person. And the, the fisherman goes, that's really interesting. Well, then what? He said, well, then, you know, you could, you could grow it to an entire fleet of boats. You know, and then you could have this big operation. You could make all this money. You could have, you know, a, a, a business. You could do all do all these amazing things with this company that you're building. You grow grow really fast. And he says, "Well, that's that, wow. That sounds really impressive." But then what? And the businessman says, "Well, at that point, you probably need to get you know offices. You probably need to move to a major city so that you can run the whole operation. But at that point, you're you're literally. I mean, you're going to be making millions. Maybe even someday you go public." you know, cash out for hundred million dollars. And the fisherman says, wow, that's amazing. Well, what then? He said, then comes the good part. You get to retire and move to a little fishing village, take a nap every afternoon, eat lunch with your wife, hang out with your friends and drink a glass of beer in the city square, go to bed early and do the whole thing over again. So the, the moral of the story really is that a lot of times, you know, we, we don't really need to go through all the different hoops that we need to. A lot of times we sacrifice the thing that we really want, that we really want just to eventually end up in the same place later. So I, I'm all for ambition. I think, you know, achieving big things is great. But at the end of the day, we really have to know, like, what is it that we really want and focus on the fact that the journey does matter. Yeah, that's an awesome story. I mean, the self-awareness that that points out. I think that like, you know, my co-host isn't here, Mike and I, you know, we, we have very different aspects of what success means to us in life and where we want our lives really? to go. But <laughs> and, and he's totally the, the fisherman and he wants like, he's out on a boat right now in the middle of Oregon. And I'm like, that's dude, awesome. if I was out in the boat in the middle of Oregon, I would be probably trying to dial in on Wi-Fi hotspot, you know, awesome, like I just, yeah. I just, I love the idea of like, you know, uh, totally different things than I think what, what he does. And that's, yeah success to him is totally different. So it's a perfect transition though. You know, the theme of our show is live uncomfortably. Yeah. And uh, we usually don't talk about what it means to us, but I'm curious about, you know, you've talked a little bit about it. What do you think of when you hear the phrase and how does it apply to your life? I think living uncomfortably in terms of entrepreneurship and for just me personally, really comes down to constantly questioning your own beliefs about the way things work. I think when you're willing to be to take responsibility for the results when you're willing to say, to look at everything that's happening around you and consider the fact that it could be your fault. That's a very uncomfortable, scary reality to live in, but it's also an incredibly empowering reality to live in. 
you know, you don't really have any control over a situation until you accept responsibility for it. And I think there are a lot of people out there who, you know, for a million different reasons, want to believe that anything they're not happy with in their life is to some extent, at least not their fault. And there's, there's a lot of comfort that comes with that belief because if you really don't think you have control over negative situations or circumstances in your life, then you can kind of move on from day to day and, you know, be at peace with yourself. But the second that you say, Hey, what if this is my fault? What if I do have the power to create a better situation? I think that gets very uncomfortable, but extremely empowering. And nearly everybody that I know who's achieved any significant level of success has started by asking themselves those really uncomfortable questions and living in that uncomfortable reality of what if these bad things that I don't like, what if these, you know, I don't know if you want to call them bad, but what if, what if these things that I don't like about the way my life looks right now are my fault? And if they were my fault, what could I do to change them? What is in my power? Who could I call? I know I can't call 20,000 different people who might be able to help me, but who can I call? What can I do? What time do I have to work on a side hustle, you know? And that to me, I think is, is what it means to live uncomfortably in a way that really propels you forward. That's awesome. Well, thanks again for joining us today. And uh, any final remarks before we part ways? I think we're good. Awesome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming. Hey, Conquerors, that's it for the episode today. Hope you guys enjoyed that episode and learned a lot. If you did, make sure to leave a like, share us on Facebook with your friends. We really appreciate all your support. And every time you share our podcast or leave a review on iTunes, it really does help us out. Before we let you go, we want to take one last moment to thank all of our incredible sponsors here at Conquering Columbus. And that starts with Small Biz Cares. Small Biz Cares is a nonprofit founded by socially conscious community leaders here in Columbus. And their goal is to connect, mobilize, and inspire small businesses to create lasting positive impact in our community. Small Biz Cares members have the unique opportunity to work with like-minded businesses to raise money for great causes and participate in large-scale volunteer efforts and improve educational opportunity for youth in our community. To learn more, visit smallbizcares.org. That is smallbizcares.org. Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit helping connect entrepreneurs to everything they need, including investors, mentors, capital, and talent through business pitch events, workshops, and classes throughout the state. And you can get more information on the web at sundownrundown.org. And now I'm going to kick it back to Josh to tell you about our last sponsor, FMX. FMX is a cloud-based facilities maintenance and management software founded and headquartered right here in Columbus, Ohio. There's a lot of competitors in this space, but FMX has made a name for itself, become the fastest growing facilities maintenance and management software on the market on behalf of its extreme ease of use and tailored fit approach to its clients. They serve industries ranging from education to property management, manufacturing, fast casual, and more. If you want to check out more, you can go to gofmx.com. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment, and I might get you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. 
choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus.